The Bible reading for this week uh, is from Micah chapter 6, and that's on uh, page 779 if you have uh, the church Bibles. It's just sort of one page over from Jonah where we were last week. Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. So you should bear the scorn of my people." I thought we might stretch out a little bit uh, in our thinking uh, further from what we were thinking through last week with the prophet Jonah by dropping in today uh, to another one of these Old Testament prophets, this time in Micah. And Micah was a prophet of God about a generation or so after Jonah. And while Jonah, if you recall, had been sent to speak God's word to the people in Assyria, uh, Micah prophesied uh, alongside prophets like Isaiah uh, to bring God's word to the people of Israel itself. But it's otherwise a pretty similar message, as you'll discover later when you read through the whole book, uh, just into that different context of of how God wants his own people in in Israel to turn from their ways of sin. Uh, Last week, uh, you remember we thought in Jonah about judgment and hope as as two kind of intertwined themes that that come to us in most of the prophets' messages in Scripture. Uh, We can expect judgment from God on account of our sin. Because he is so righteous and just, he must bring sin to account. 
And yet so too the prophets declared that by God's mercy we can hope for salvation from that judgment that we deserve. So the just and yet merciful nature of God means there will be certain judgment of sin and yet hope for salvation. I thought we might open Micah chapter 6 today because the themes are there, but it actually puts those two themes back to you and I as to how we should act just the same in when we live. Uh, we too should be just and merciful if, if we carry God's name. Uh, after three chapters of judgment, as you'll see when you read it, and then two chapters of salvation, those two themes, uh, chapter 6 kind of puts them both together and recaps it all in one place for us. Uh, have a look at the structure of this chapter then. Uh, first of all, at the start, uh, there are five verses. Some, some great open-air court case is kind of set up and, and the land is called in as a witness as to how good and righteous God has been towards Israel. That's verses 1 to 5. Uh, then there are three verses, chapter six, uh, verse 6 through 8, and, uh, in which Micah seems to speak uh, on behalf of Israel, uh, asking the question as to how... Well, how Israel should have responded to God's goodness and righteousness to them. And, and then in verses 9 to 16, the, the verdict comes in as to how Israel did, in fact, live in response to God's goodness to them. They, they followed evil ways rather than live the way God had called them to live. There's a bit in the middle that I want us to, to hone in on with our time today. From verses 6 to verse 8 where we see what God wants of his people. And notably that, that he wants that we would be just and kind, as verse 8 says. Uh, that's actually, if you think about it, the message about him that the prophets are always proclaiming. Uh, the message of judgment and hope is precisely because God is both just and yet kind to us. So I think it's supposed to catch our eye that God has asked these things of us just the same. Uh, so let's zoom in today and just focus on that little section, I think, those three verses, verse 6 to 8, and they seem to go together as a nice little Q&A kind of package. In the first two verses, verses 6 and 7, the person representing God's people asks, asks a big question. How can they be in the presence of the Lord? That's the question. It's a good question. We should all ask that question. They acknowledge then that, that they have been sinful and are not worthy to come before the Lord. How could they possibly stand before the holy, holy, holy God with sin in their soul? Isn't this a good question for us to ask? Some kind of reparation, it seems, in the verses, some kind of offering or payment, a covering for their sin would first be needed if they were to be in the presence of God. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? The futility of this approach of, of somehow trying to make reparations for their sin starts to get a bit clearer as we get into verse 7 and the question continues, will the Lord be pleased with, with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's a good question here but it's a rhetorical question and line of questions it declares our inability 
to make good on our sin and come before God. And then the answer in verse 8 seems to point the sinner towards what would please the Lord. None of those offerings are what God desires, but rather God wants that we would just live as he has asked us and would have us live, verse 8. The answer to that spiritual separation problem uh, in verses 6 and 7 between us and God is a, is a little Q&A of its own put back to the sinner, verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so simply put, we could hear the call here in the middle of Micah chapter 6 like this. How can I make good for my sin in the eyes of the Lord? Change. Turn from sin. Repent and, and live as God has called you to live. Which sounds just like utter logic, doesn't it? I mean, that's just so logical and, and simple enough an answer, isn't it? But... But how do we actually do that? How do we actually unpack that very simplistic solution? What exactly is it, for one thing, to do justice, as verse 8 puts it? Everyone in this world would probably claim that they act justly, wouldn't they? Most people, anyway. But different people have got different ideas on what that means, don't they? What it is to act justly, and, and hence... Look around all the conflict in this world. Putin today is adamant that he is acting justly, but others disagree. That's the grand scale, but it goes right down to the fine scale. So how are we to, to take this first part of the call here in verse 8? Well, in the next verse we get some general guidance on that, I think, as Micah urges us in verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. It is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. I think these words clarify for us that if we want to act justly in life by that call in verse 8, then we need to be calibrating our actions against God's word. So sure, anyone on this earth can convince themselves and then train themselves how to self-justify all of their actions, but the one that we must listen to is God. I think that gets us a, a helpful general fix on, on doing things justly. We must measure all of our choices against the word of God. So too, the next verse starts listing out some specific examples for us from, from this time uh, when Israel were being rebuked through Malachi. Uh, we might think about those too, of course. I mean, these are ways that Israel had been acting unjustly. Uh, verse 10, can I forget any longer, asks God, the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. A scant measure, verse 10, is, is a way of saying less than the full and proper amount. In other words, verses 10 and 11, people were shortchanging each other, ripping each other off. They're, they're building up their own private asset bases at the, at the expense of dealing fairly, justly with others. 
and they were harsh and abusive, verse 12, lying and deceitful. Package it all up, it all says that they were self-seeking, self-loving people who therefore had no love for others. Israel here sounds no different to any other nation in the fallen world. So we might weigh that up in terms of our calling today. There's nothing lost in translation there, is there? Or buried in context. These charges could be levelled as is at the world today, couldn't they? Everyone is still out for themselves. Scamming and and lying and, and doing whatever is necessary to above all else make sure you take care of number one. So what about us? I think we should ask. As Christians called to follow Jesus, are we different to this picture? Are we different to the wider world today? Do our lives look different on this score? Or are we too, actually, at the end of the day, just out for ourselves? Do we do justice, as verse 8 calls us to? Or, Or do we too do injustice just in our own kind of way? What exactly is it for uh, us to love kindness, verse 8? We might be very polite and friendly, even charitable now and then. Uh, and so again, I would reckon most, most everyone in the world would probably say, yes, of course, of course I'm kind. I'm a kind person. We've got a pretty shallow take on that word, though, in our culture. To us, kindness just... I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty empty, isn't it? It's almost a hollow word. We almost know it's hollow when we say it. It doesn't carry any weight or gravity anymore. It's almost just for when we're doing a good turn and a way for us, therefore, to feel a little bit better about ourselves. In the Bible, the word underneath kindness is deep. It's about steadfast love like the love that God still had for Israel, even at times like this, even when they were unfaithful to him. And God actually gives us a a classic example here of that biblical idea of kindness from, from his perspective. Because this nation under rebuke here has already received that kindness from God by way of his undeserved mercy. God reminds them in verse 4, what a classic example. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from a house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And by way of reference, Israel had been idolatrous in Egypt. They had abandoned God. They had dishonoured God, worshipping other gods, false gods, when they lived in that land. You can read about that in places like Joshua 24 or or more graphically, if you can handle it, in in Ezekiel 23. But but Israel had been sinful and idolatrous in Egypt, and they ended up in slavery. And yet, God acted towards them in mercy. Where there should have been justice for their sin, God loved kindness. He showed them steadfast love. He sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to bring them safely out of that land and back to him. And he protected them on the way, as he goes on in verse 5. It was sheer mercy instead of justice 
so that instead of being a, a sinful and, and lost and, and idolatrous, uh, sl- slaved people, they would be his people. The sheer mercy, which is why God says here that he redeemed them from that state they were in. He wore the cost of their sin so they could be free. Israel was a national example of God's kindness. And that's how deep this word's meaning is in Scripture. Israel should have known better than anyone else what it means, therefore, to show kindness to others. They've received such kindness from God. They should know what it would look like to now be kind. And again, the question that should bubble out of this is, well, what about us? Us who have received such mercy from God as we have received, are we any different on this score? Do we love kindness when we deal with others? Not that shallow kind of kindness that the world's uh, caught up in. Uh, when we you know, just want to admire ourselves a little bit, that, that those people do. No, no, the deep biblical kind of kindness. Do, do we recall God's great love for us who sometimes wrong him when we then deal with those around us who've perhaps wronged us? Or do we change track? Are we only harsh and judicial towards others, insisting on defending our rights? Are we big on the doing justice bit at those times, but but oblivious to the loving kindness bit? Uh, Or do we just let go of our sense of justice and, and just get into tit for tat and that sort of thing? God showed kindness to us, his steadfast love and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. But has that translated into us loving others? What about this third part, this this bit about walking humbly with our God? How does that fit into all of this? I think the walking humbly bit actually holds together the other two bits. Because if we can evaluate our our hearts and, and know that we deserve God's justice and yet sit here as his people on the basis of his kind mercy, then surely we're brought into a state of absolute humility in the knowledge of that, aren't we? Just as for Israel in this text, so too for you and I today as as disciples of Jesus. We deserved justice. We received mercy. Can we then do anything but but walk humbly with our God? And, And can we, from that posture of walking humbly with our God, can we turn around and then somehow walk in arrogance towards one another? Can we really receive the one thing from God and then turn around and push another thing on everyone else? I think verse 3 it captures something of God's frustration in these things. When, when he has acted so towards us and yet we then turn around and carry on otherwise with each other. Verse 3, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. There's frustration in God's words here because of the way he has so loved them and yet they seem to be so far from that score themselves. Deep things start flowing out of this simple little call in verse 8 to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet it's so difficult, isn't it? 
I started wondering actually how this little mantra in verse 8 lined up with, with other calls God gives us in Scripture. You know, it seems like such a good, helpful and short little summary, doesn't it? And such good and challenging points to live by. And, and certainly we should live by these things. But I, I started wondering, for example, you know, you know those famous Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 we looked at a while ago in, in our series in Matthew? Uh, I wondered if those Beatitudes by Jesus could somehow be sorted basically into these three kind of baskets, doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with our God. And then I thought, well, maybe even the whole Sermon on the Mount, more or less, just kind of elaborates and fleshes out those three things. Uh, what about the Ten Commandments, I wondered, that we're thinking about in church at the moment in our life and doctrine segment? What about the rest of the law, for that matter, in Exodus, Leviticus and so on? Does this little summary in Micah 6.8 capture the heart of it all? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. Or are these three things, just three specific things, God was rebuking Israel over in Micah's day? not going to tell you what I decided. I'm going to let you explore that on your own. See what you think. Read through Micah, read and get to that verse and think just how well does that threefold call, justice, kindness, humility, line up with the other calls God gives us in, in the Bible as to how we should live? All I can tell you is that I only got all the more stuck in the difficulty of this simple-sounding call because... Because eventually, as you let this scripture roll around, uh, eventually you start to realise that verse 8 doesn't actually solve verses 6 and 7. It answers the question of the sinner, but, but it doesn't solve his problem. Because if you think about it, what else is that sinner's sin in verses 6 and 7 but a failure in regard to the call of verse 8? You know, it's not being just, not being kind, not walking humbly is surely the very problem that the sinner finds him or herself in, right? That, that's actually, that's why the correction is, is given in verse 8. Not doing verse 8 is how these people have been counted as sinful. The answer given, verse 8, is to stop not doing justice, kindness, humility and start doing them but that seems like it's only going to carry us so far if you get honest with this passage until, you see, we end up back in the problem again. Because we can change by the grace of God and start doing these things, but, but sooner than later we'll fail in them again, won't we? That's just how it goes. And then what should we do? Offer our firstborn after all? Moreover, I think the problem is, well, well, what will God do about our inevitable inability to hold out this call? Surely he wants us in his presence, as verse 6 says. Even created us to be in his presence, we would say from scripture. So, so what will he do about our failing on this simple call? So just to be clear, just to try to package all that up, we never could offer those things listed out in verses 6 and 7 to make up for our sin. Who's got 10,000 rivers of oil? And even if we could offer it, it wouldn't be sufficient. Such is the sheer offence of our sin against this holy, holy, holy God. 
And yet the solution given in verse 8, as patently simple as it is, is just technically beyond us if, if we're honest with our sinful estate. What will God do about this? God shows us what he will do, both here in Micah and in the rest of Scripture. He will do justice for one thing. He will do justice. If you let your eyes run down to verse 13 through 16, the Scripture picks up that thread. Speaking of God's justice against sin, Therefore I strike you, God says, with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you do preserve I'll give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with the oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people." Omri and Ahab were past kings of Israel who epitomised sin against God. And all who likewise live sinfully, being unjust, unkind and arrogant in their pride, will be judged by God just like they were. There is punishment coming for all sin because God will do justice. Even so, God will love kindness. God will love kindness. And immediately that sounds impossible in the face of God's certain justice against sin. But if you sneak a peek into chapter 7 and verse 7, where you'll find yourself reading later, you see this second aspect starting to take shape. Despite all the sin and the error of these Israelites at the time and, and the justice that should come, so too we suddenly see God's kindness breaking through, that deep kindness in the Bible that we're speaking of. But as for me, God says in Micah 7, or the person says in Micah 7, 7, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. God will love kindness towards his people. Despite their sin, the judgment they therefore deserve, God will plead their case and uphold their cause. He will bring them out and be their light. And so there we are, right back in that tension we were thinking about last week. The tension of the prophets, the tension of God's justice that must come, and yet his mercy that he also gives, a tension that runs all through the Old Testament prophets and all through scriptures really, as twin themes of, of judgment and hope. God is perfectly just to judge all our sin, and he must. And yet so too he is perfectly merciful to save us from that judgment. 
So it seems rather fitting then in verse 8 that, that God should ask us to be just and kind too, doesn't it? But what about this third theme in verse 8? Being humble. So a great demonstration of that last week, didn't we, in Jonah and the people of Nineveh, uh, just uh, yeah, a, a posture of humility, humble repentance swept through the whole city at the preaching of Jonah about the coming judgment. They visibly showed signs uh, of their humbling inside through fasting, prayer, sackcloth and ashes. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it's here again, this time explicitly named alongside kindness and humility, uh, justice. Justice, kindness, humility, there it is, black and white. And it seems logical, right? It seems good and a right thing that God should ask us to pursue, doesn't it? Humility. Because as I say, I think humility is the key to us being able to show kindness to others, especially those who have wronged us, which is what biblical kindness kind of gets to. The way God showed kindness to Nineveh. The way God showed kindness to Israel too and, and the way Jesus calls us to do when he says, for example, that we should love our enemies. Humility is required, isn't it, if we're going to do that? To go from wanting fair justice to, to, to having kindness towards them in our hearts. But what about in terms of God? So we see in the prophets that God is both just and merciful and so it seems logical and fitting and right that he should want us to be like that too. But what about this humility one? Is God asking of us there something he wouldn't do? As it happens, there could not have been a bigger display of humility ever put to us, nor even conceived in our minds, than the humility God showed us when the Son of God came to save us from sin. When Jesus came to die on the cross, to thread together perfectly as he did this tension, God's justice against our sin and yet his mercy to save us sinners, it, it called for him to be perfectly infinitely, in light of who he is, humble. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, the shame of it all. Can you even imagine the creator of this universe humbling himself like that? To come into this world in our form so as to die for our sin. Our sin that is against him. Could we possibly take offence that he would then ask us to turn around too and walk humbly with him, as he does here in Micah 6.8? Our God has demonstrated so wondrously that he himself is just, kind and humble. He only asks us then in, in places like Philippians 2 and, and Micah 6 that, that we should be more like him. The prophets are going to keep speaking of God's justice and mercy 
as I say. And we're going to have to keep in mind that those two things always are requiring, always are pointing forward to God's humility in Jesus Christ crucified for our sin. When Jesus did die for our sin, he, he solved our crisis in verses 6 and 7 of Micah chapter 6. Friends, we have not always been just. We have not always been kind and we have not always been humble in our lives. But with our sin in such things having been paid for by Jesus, such that we can come before our great God, as verse 6 calls us to, this call in verse 8 now just comes all the more to life for us. In, in this wonderful mystery, God's justice and kindness and humility towards us at the cross only gives us all the greater a call to pursue this, this justice and kindness and humility ourselves in our own lives here on out. So let me uh, take God's call through Micah to Israel and put it to us here today. How well... Does God's justice, kindness and humility towards you at the cross, how well does it map over to how you are now living? Are you learning and striving to be just and kind and humble now too? In what ways could you act more justly? To whom could you show more of this deep biblical idea of kindness? How and when could your posture be more humble like that of Jesus? Can you see any connection, any room perhaps for biblical correction between your sense of justice and your sense of kindness and your sense of humility? Good questions as we close. Let me encourage you, of course, to read through the whole of Micah later. That, that's the idea of this series. It's a, it's a tough book, uh, fair warning. Heads up, but it's only seven chapters and it'll probably take you about half an hour or so. Grab a cup, find a comfy chair, see what else you can discover in here about God through this prophet Micah. And what else he might say to you. But let me pray for us now as we close and, and try to take on this particular call in front of us in the middle of chapter 6. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your scripture and the privilege it is that we can sit here and, and look through it together. We thank you too that you are just and kind and humble towards us in what you have done to make us your people. Uh, Father, please help us now with this difficult call to, to be like that too. Our hearts can be deceitful. So please have your spirit shine a light in there and, and reveal to us where we can be more just and where we can be more kind and, and where we can be more humble in what we do. And Father, not just for the clarity, but then have your spirit give us the conviction to follow through on that call. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.